Blog Talk Radio. Ignite your life with passion and purpose. Your health, your wealth, your happiness. Make it good. This is Modern Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. A big thank you to Rainbow A big thank you to Rainbow Grocery, our favorite grocery store here in the San Francisco Bay Area for being our sponsor because a healthy body is a sexy body. All right, so talking about sexy bodies and love and everything else you might want in 2016, what do you think? Do you think you're going to keep your New Year's resolutions? Did you keep them last year in 2015? When you look back, was this year really so different from the years before? Well, guess what? If you are writing resolutions, there's a high likelihood they're going to fail because our guest tonight says that resolutions and the way that we create them are flawed because we aren't working with the power in our own brains. I want you to just tap your head right now, wherever you are, and go, hmm, power center right here in my own brain. Tonight we have with us a specialist in behavior neuroscience and a faculty member at Stanford Med School, Dr. Kyra Bobinette, who says that we can only be successful if we match our New Year's resolutions to how our brains work. She's going to explain how to apply brain science to eating healthier, exercising more, and making all of those resolutions a reality in 2016. And she's the author of a new book. You're all going to want to put this book on your bookshelf and on your mobile device or whatever you put it on. The book is called The Well-Designed Life, 10 Lessons in Brain Science and Design Thinking for a mindful, healthy, and purposeful life. Now, that sounds fabulous. She's been featured on NPR, Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, Fast Company, lots of other media outlets. I'm going to tip right now. Her website is www.drkyrabobinette, that's B-O-B-I-N-E-T.com. You can also reach her at www.engagedin.com. That's E-N-G-A-D-E-D-I-N, engagedin.com. So let's welcome Dr. Kyra Bobinette to Modern Love Radio. Hey, Dr. Bobinette, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Dr. Brenda, for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. You are all up in one of my sweet spots. All of our listeners know I love, love, love me some neuroscience because the brain does get the last word. Now, you talk about something called fast brain versus slow brain. Explain that, would you? Yeah, so, you know, fast brain is uh, kind of an easier way to remember 
what behavioral psychologists have discovered is what they call system one thinking, which is uh, basically 95% of all of our behaviors are governed by a very fast kind of knee-jerk or rule-of-thumb part of our brain that puts everything on autopilot so that we don't have to think of how to tie our shoes or how to get to work every day. We just do it um, automatically and without any sort of, you know, uh, we put everything on habit control, if you will. And slow brain is what we... Yeah, exactly. And so slow brain is the system two mind, which is that kind of hard thinking, problem solving, willpower, decision making, kind of arduous kind of you know, functions in the brain. And so that's the thing we try to do the least amount of and that we have the least amount of energy every day to do. Exactly, because that habit brain, I know everybody has had this experience of driving down the street and looking up and going, wow, I just drove miles. Well, who was driving your car, Dr. Bobinette? That would be (laughs) habit brain. So how did you get interested in how the brain works? What's your story? Yeah, so, you know, I think forever I've been interested in behavior change or my own behavior or that of other people. Um, I was very close to animals as a little kid, and so... Uh, growing, growing up in Oklahoma, I was fascinated with what made them tick and then also just the human animals around me, what made them tick. And so, you know, it, it has kind of occupied my my thinking um, in whatever career I was in. I was a scientist for many years, bench scientist, and then I was a physician. Then I went into public health because I wanted to help people kind of at a larger scale uh, with behaviors that were very vexing at an individual level. Hmm. Now, what are those things that you feel are vexing at an individual level? Yeah, I think the main the main thing that unites them all is this idea of, you know, I, I know what I should do. I just don't know why I don't do it. You know, we all, quote, unquote, know better, but we really, really don't. Hmm. So we all think we know what we should do, but we don't know how to do it. Is that what you're saying? No, I think we think we know how to do it. We just are confused as to why, when it comes down to it, we end up not doing it. You know, we, we so end up either getting example. distracted. Well, yeah. you know, people people set resolutions, for example, this time of year, and they know what they should do. They should go to the gym or they should eat less or they should save money or they should spend more time with their kids. But when it comes down to it, they end up not doing what they set out to do, and they're completely frustrated with themselves. Hmm. All right, so what is the secret? And when you talk about slow brain versus fast brain, what makes the brain slow? What makes it fast? So, again, you know, the fast brain is just kind of a metaphor for all the stuff we have put on autopilot, and that includes all of our uh, distractions, our, you know, little ways of uh, getting through our day, our creature comforts, our, our comfort foods, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, a classic example is if if I swear off eating cookies, I may have the cookie in my mouth. The fast brain might put the cookie in my mouth before my slow brain wakes up and says, oh, yeah, I forgot. I promised myself I wouldn't eat any more cookies yesterday, and so today I forgot. Let me put this cookie down first, Kyra, just a second. Okay, yes. Okay, keep talking. You also talk about things that really work against us and make it harder for us to get slow brain there, things like stress, lack of sleep, things like that. That's right. That's right. I think the easiest way to remember it is fast brain is like the superhighway. It's the fastest way to get there. And the slow brain is kind of these dirt roads or these sort of back ways that take a lot more time and thought to 
figure it out. And so, you know, when you're stressed, when you're tired, kind of like the example you gave, you end up just kind of mind-numbingly drive somewhere and and you don't wake up for a while and say, oh, I didn't mean to do that or what am I doing, you know? So that's where the slow brain, uh, people knowing that there's a slow brain and a fast brain helps them to figure out what what's going wrong. You know, is it that my fast brain, I'm just fast braining this because I'm tired, because I'm stressed, because I'm confused, because I need comfort, you know, those kinds of things. And, and it switches, it you know makes us go to, to that old highway. Okay, so everybody really get this down. Fast brain works against us. We want the slow brain so that we can think through and be present, really be present with what it is we're doing, yes or yes, Dr. Carter. Well, kind of. I mean, I think you can work with both fast and slow brain. I think the thing that helps people is realizing hey, there is a difference, you know, and, and that it's, I'm not bad for this is how the mind works. And we have 11 million sensory inputs a second that that our brain has to contend with. So the way that it contends with that is it puts everything on autopilot and preferentially 95% of our behaviors are done by the fast brain to just save us energy because we need to conserve energy. But when we want to change our behavior, we are then asking the slow brain to do a pretty big job of controlling this, this sort of automaticity of our behavior in, in the fast brain. So what we do as designers is we basically try to even out the score by either slowing down the fast brain with friction, and this is things like you know putting the cookies in the freezer or throwing them out altogether or putting them in the back of the cupboard, some way in which it makes it harder to do that thing which I don't want to do anymore, or... In the slow brain case, if there's something I want to do, like go running, I put my shoes by the door or I make it easier and more frictionless, taking out friction, so that it preferentially drives me in that direction. So the things we want to do, we want to make them easier. The things we don't want to do, we want to make them harder. That's right. That's right. And And that's how you deal with both fast and slow brain. Yes. Okay. I got it. Now, I hope everybody else has it. If you have questions... You can join the conversation if you're listening live. You can call us old school. Actually, talk to us, 347-989-0776. Or Facebook me, Dr. Brenda Wade. Tweet at us, Dr. Brenda Wade. Our associate producer, Cliff Dunning, is standing by to take your questions. And if you want your brain in gear helping you achieve Your goals, intentions, resolutions for 2016, this is an important conversation. So what is the number one thing on your list that would help us really manage our brain and optimize the brain's power? Excellent question. I think that the focus needs to be a little different. I think the way that we think about resolutions or even behavior change is by defining a very hard fixed goal, such as I want to lose 20 pounds, And since losing weight can be reversed and often is reversed, that sets us up to fail. And there's actually a part of our brain called the habenula, which counts failure and lowers our motivation to try again. So you see, you know, Oprah doing the Weight Watchers thing and she talks about, you know, that she's tried and failed a million times. She's actually speaking to that area of the brain that she has to overcome her own habenula of I've done this before, been there, done that. And the only remedy that I've seen people use is something called kind of an iterative mindset or 
you know, I'm going to I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to create a system. I'm going to, you know, tweak my system and tinker with the system until it works for my brain. And those people who approach it that way are going to succeed way more than people who so set break a rigid that down. Goal. If you were if you were a person who wants to use this tinkering with the brain method, how do you do it? So I think it's the first thing is you want to change what you the story you're telling yourself. So instead of telling yourself a story, I'm going to lose 20 pounds, there's a there's a better version of that, which is I'm going to figure out how I can lose weight and keep it off by experimenting with what works for me and continually improving upon and doing new versions of what I want until it works. And then even when it when I get it to work for a little while, I'll probably get tired of it, and then I gotta, I have to iterate and you know create a new version, like the iPhone four, five, six. Think of it as versions of your solution. So we want version six of our brains. We want yes, to want... version six that gets the g- gorgeous pictures <laughs> and does everything faster and better than the other versions. How right, do we get exactly. There? Right, and and you know, people who succeed at this, um, they're different than other people in the sense that they approach it like a designer. They think like a designer, and they think in versions. They think in little experiments. They say, "Oh, did that work? Oh, that didn't work. You know, oh, that works a little bit better. A little closer. A little closer. That mm. kind of thing." Mhm. Okay. So, can you put that in behavior terms? Like, if you're thinking my brain is going to figure out a better way to lose weight and keep it off. What behaviors go with that? So there's a lot of information out there I find of ideas to try. So, you know, it's really just the the approach that matters. You know, somebody saying, okay, I'm going to figure out what works for me. For example, my mother was a, she is a popcorn addict. And to figure oh, out something that works. Oh, I love I know, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, but she wanted to lower the popcorn, you know, consumption because she wanted to look good for my wedding this last summer. So, you know, she congratulations. Yes, thank you very much. Um, So she basically had to design a way to again put friction in the way of what she would overindulge in. So she bought smaller, tiny, those mini bags, you know, and that Mm -hmm. way she had to pop one at a time. And it gave her 60 seconds to figure out, you know, to, to to let her slow brain catch up and figure out what she wanted to do, you know, and be conscious about it in that moment. And so by doing that and slowing herself down and not tempting herself with a big bucket of popcorn, she was able to accomplish her goal. Yeah, but what if I just go buy the big bag that's already popped and I eat it, Carson? <laughs> yeah, she did that. She did that at first. And we were talking about that. Here was the funny part is that she said, okay, I'm going to buy the big bag and then I'm going to divide it up into little bags and Ziplocs and then I will eat less because it's cheaper that way. But ultimately, you know, she blew through that design and, you know, her fast brain just completely overrode that, that version. So as uh. an experimenter... Yeah, so as an experimenter, you have to say, mm, that broke, you know, kind of like Edison, you know, that version didn't work. I have to do right. another tweak to it. Okay, so I'm going to have to start popping my popcorn. All right, I got it. Now, <laughs> you talk about some specific steps, and one of them is to routinize what you're doing, get a routine going. And you mentioned Steve Jobs, who wore the same kind of outfit every day. 
That's right. Now, what, so, is, what is the, the value of retinizing and getting into a routine? Right. So, you know, basically there's a whole trend around habits, but the, the idea here is that you just want to have it as similar to the fast brain as possible. If the fast brain is thoughtlessness, if it's habit, if it's, you know, I don't have to think about this at all, I don't have to burn a single neuron for this, then what would it look like to do that thing you want to do in that sort of routinized kind of way so that you start to get used to it so it starts to build up into the the part of you that feels like yourself? You know, a part of what we uh, reject about new routines is that they feel very, very foreign. And so a way mm-hmm. that we can, you know, not become allergic to that in our in our sort of prefrontal cortex is to, you know, create something that feels a little similar, that um, feels kind of like us, and just keep doing it over and over again. Hmm. Well, one successful habit you talk about that for those who are on the wellness and fitness train for 2016, you talk about the successful habit of freezing healthy meals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this came from research that I did with people who had, you know, diabetes, and it turned out that you know when they had the habit or the pra- the behavior of preparing meals a week in advance, or even you know taking a big meal like chili or soup or something like that, and casserole that is healthy, and then freezing it they were able to really combat their fast brain, which on the way home from work just wanted to go through the drive-through. They could go, they could just have that little bit of hope that, oh, wait, I have that meal. I can just pop in and I really enjoy it in the microwave and I won't have to wait too long. Mm, okay, so it's planning ahead, having what you need at your fingertips so you're not tempted to go into the behavior that won't support the resolution or the goal. That's right. Anytime that you did not plan for your future self, you know, your future self can break out of the pen, so to speak, and go running amok and do what you don't (laughs) really want it to do. (laughs) Yes, my future self is running amok right now. Now, what do you mean by fresh and triggers? That's another one of your tips. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we become desensitized, as you know, as a neuroscientist yourself, um, we become desensitized to anything that we see over and over again, and we can kind of ignore it. And so people have really great ideas in January 1 and say, oh, I'm going to put Post-its all over my house and that kind of thing. But they have to remember to remember, meaning that they have to set an alarm or a calendar date where they're going to take down all those old Post-its and create new ones that will maybe be funny, maybe be interesting or, or you know gripping, emotional would be best. And that way it kind of grabs the brain's attention again when it chooses to get used to its environment and just start to ignore things for for efficiency's sake again. Hmm. Now, does it work that, say, for example, a lot of people create a vision board at the beginning of the year and Mm -hmm. you're looking at the same photos all year long. Isn't the subconscious mind also coding those photos so that they do imprint our brains, our consciousness, if you will? To a point, I think that um, there's definitely kind of a razor's edge, right, down which you could go either side. So on one side of the brain, you can become desensitized. If those photos kind of become a uh, a backdrop where it doesn't elicit any sort of emotion in you again, then it can be kind of ignored completely. On the other hand, there's a part of our brain which kind of counts the exposure level of something that we 
see all the time, and of course ad agencies exploit this all the time with product placement and billboards and all the different forms of which they barrage us with their brand. But you know, the the implicit memory, of course, counts all those things and says, oh, and then we become aware of that thing. But since it's us doing it to ourselves, it's more likely that we're going to become desensitized to it. If it was somebody mm-hmm. else kind of building up an awareness in us, uh, and then at some point it pops into our into our conscious mind, oh, I, I remember that product, or I see that, I, I right, hear that. Right, you go down that the aisle before. and you reach for You see Torah. it, you recognize it, exactly. Right. Because somebody else put that in your in your trigger field, so to speak. But if you put it in your own trigger field, you're going to kind of anticipate that you did that. And um, one exception, though, is things like writing yourself a letter and then having that sent at a certain date and time in the future. So you know, your, your, ba- your past self is like, hello, future self. I just wanted to remind you that I really care about this and I hope you're doing well and that kind of thing. Those kinds of triggers in the future are very effective. Oh, that's a really cool thing. I am so going to use that. Thank you. I like it. Absolutely. Now, for those people who are most successful with their resolutions, what are the mm-hmm. habits that they're using that yeah, really lead to success? Yeah, it's really a mindset first, meaning that, you know, what is the story they're telling themselves? And those people tell themselves, I'm going to figure this out. They don't tell themselves, I'm going to lose the weight. I'm going to do this thing because that's kind of a win or loss game. And if they don't accomplish it, then, of course, their motivation gets killed because they feel like, you know, I, I tried and I failed. Um, but people who endure, people who go past that point, are people who have the mindset of, I'm going to iterate on this, I'm going to tinker and tweak with this until I get it right. And even when I get it right and it starts to get boring, I'm going to figure out what my next thing is. So, you know, there's a lot of research on people who have curiosity or who have a sense of purpose in life. It's kind of that fuel that that continues to explore and adventure. And and in animals, actually, uh, the neuroscientist Jack Pinksepp has found that seeking behavior is the strongest emotion in the animal brain and therefore, you know, likely the strongest emotion in the human brain. Hmm, That's interesting. It makes sense for animals. They're seeking food. They're seeking safety and shelter, you think it's the same for humans? I think so. It's just that our survival tactics are very different since the food thing, at least in this country, is worked out for a lot of people. And it's actually the opposite problem at this point, right? So we have to figure out what what are we seeking that gives us a sense of that meaning, that, that survival, that sort of primacy of our existence. Okay, now tell us about this engaged in idea that you're working with. Yeah, so, you know, I, I I was a physician and, you know, really noticed that no matter what I said to my patients, they struggled to change their behavior. I mean, myself as a human being, I also struggled to change behavior. And then I was an executive, I was the medical director for a very large company and helped, you know, design things for thousands, if not millions of people to you know, get get uh, their blood tested for cholesterol and get immunizations and flu shots and, you know, you know, colonoscopies and things like that. And what I noticed was that we all kind of struggled with this idea of, I know what I should do, I just won't do it or I can't do it or I don't know why I don't do it. And that led me to go to Stanford and study, you know, behavior design. And so I launched Engaged In as a full-time, you know, boutique design firm. And we actually design behaviors for companies, government, you know, all, all these kinds of p- 
people who are interested in helping other people become more healthy and more well. Mm, interesting. So can you share anything from your discoveries that you're working on right now that would help us all make 2016 our healthiest year yet? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is, you know, really think like a designer. I, I find that across all of my projects, across all the research I've done, people who have that mindset of I'm going to tinker and tweak this until I figure it out have the longest lasting, most enduring success. And people who have fixed goals of I'm gonna get I'm gonna get healthier, I'm gonna, you know, do something that is reversible, you know, that can be taken away, that's maybe temporary, they suffer a lot and they actually struggle the most. Okay, so we all have to get the mindset I'm going to figure it out. Whatever it is, I'm going to stay with it. You also put in another step that I really think is important, and that is the step of saying, and once I figure out the first part, I'll figure out the next part, and then I'll figure out the next part. So this idea that we stay with a process, because I know a lot of people go, okay, check, and then the goal they've reached doesn't have any meaning or any juice anymore. That is super profound because most people do think that once they've accomplished X goal that they're done. And what they don't realize is that because of the dynamic nature of our brain, because of the fact that even doing something and accomplishing it has changed us, we either might be you know, unchallenged and bored with what we used to do as, you know, to get there, or we might need that next push. We might need that next challenge, that next seeking thing to to give us a sense of purpose and meaning and accomplishment. So and we want so, to work with the speaking part of the brain. If you don't right. mind, Dr. Kyra, hang tight. We've got a question that just came in. Wonderful. This is from Joseph here in San Francisco. Joseph says, the biggest struggle in my life has not been weight, which you've been talking about. It's money. Mm-hmm. How do I change my money habits? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So what I would say, Joseph, is what are the ways that you can put friction in the way of your fast brain? So you probably, if you're, if you feel out of control with money, you probably have areas where it's slipping out of your fingers. You know, is it your debit card? Is it, is it the credit card? Is it things that, you know, kind of take out friction for you that in a negative direction? You know, how can you put friction back in? Can you buy, you know, limited cards that are preloaded? Can you only carry cash and then once that cash is gone, that's it? Can you set up and find a plan or a checking account that, um, you know, you have to tran- – it automatically transfers money over to your savings account and puts limits and budgets on things? Can you uh, work with a credit union or something where the cash and the, the money isn't as accessible to you? You have to do some pre-planning in order to pay your bills, in order to have access to your money. Like those are the kinds of things that help people who, uh, you know, otherwise don't do well with this fast brain aspect governing their money choices, and they've got to slow it down. They've got to figure out how to how to control that part so that they their slow brain, which you know knows what to do, has well, a chance. Well, this raises of another question for me: for people who are dealing with things like whether it's money, health, et cetera, does it help? Is it important to have support to have somebody else there, coaching or supporting? For example, you know one of the great programs to help people change really dangerous behavior are the 12-step programs. 
I like the fact that people who are in 12-step programs have a sponsor. And when they trust that sponsor, when that, that relationship is very strong, it does actually make a big difference in their outcomes. Um, so, yes, we are social animals. We need to be, you know, uh, connected to people who are helping us. And, and particularly if, in Joseph's case, if somebody in his world is really causing him to overspend, you know, maybe he's um, with people who have more money than him. That's an off, it's oftentimes a setup for folks. Or they don't manage their money well. They'll, he'll, just the social norm of that, right, will will mm-hmm. cause you to behave in a different way. Because so maybe a money coach skills. is also something that Joseph could look at. We have one more question we're going to squeeze in before we go. And this one is coming in from Sandy in San Rafael. Sandy says, is there something or technique I can use for creating success in my life? Yes. So I think that the uh, the steps, in my book, I mean, the reason why I wrote the book was to answer questions like this from Sandy, because I kept doing keynotes and speeches, and people would say, well, how do I learn about all this? How do I understand my brain? And, and I specifically chose the, the 10 lessons around brain science because they were kind of the greatest hits that I found to be the most important things to know about. And for each person, it's a different thing. You know, it, there are 10 standalone lessons. So Whoever, whichever one is most resonant with you, Sandy, that that's the main thing, and and you can just jump around in the book because it's kind of an anthology of behavior change as far as you know. I wrote it. All right, and we're going to come back to that in one second. We've got one last question. We have to get it in. My issue is my love life. What do I do? That's from Bill. Bill doesn't say where he's from. Okay, so Bill, I would say that you know, looking at. Uh, you know, self-compassion is probably the starting point of anyone who is particularly struggling with love life uh, because that's the area where there's th- th- what's happening externally to you is actually, you know, at least mirrored internally first. So there is a chapter on that also in the book. Excellent. Wonderful. So self-compassion I can totally sign on because if you don't love yourself or at least think you are reasonably a decent human being it's going to be tough bill and on modern love you know that is the key we want everyone to have tools to be successful in every area the more Mm -hmm. success you have with money the better your love life the more Mm. you have great health and well-being the better your love life it all comes home to love and vice versa and vice versa so thank you so much dr kyra bobinette and her website once again, is drkyrabobinette.com, and she has a second site, which is engagedin.com, both of those triple dub. Of course, the book. Now, we are huge proponents here at Modern Love Radio, and you hear me say it every single week, build a library. You need resources. We need information. When we learn better, we do better. Get this book. It's called Well-Designed Life. Ten Lessons in Brain Science and Design Thinking for a Mindful, Healthy, and Purposeful Life. Thank you so much, Dr. Kyra. Pleasure having you with us this evening. And everybody, stay with us. If you really, really, really want to knock 2016 out of the park, join me January 9th and 10th in our Modern Love Academy where you're going to get to work with Two fabulous guests, Chief Philip Scott 
from the Lakota Wisdom Traditions, Ancestral Voices will be with us, Dr. Marcus Penn, to work with you from a physician standpoint on how to make 2016 your year of wellness. And of course, you know you're going to leave with a visual tool and probably a letter to your future self, courtesy of Dr. Kyra Bobinette. So send me an email right now, love at docway.com to reserve your space. Upcoming guests that you are going to want to hear, Kendi Gill next week talking about overcoming love blocks. On the 12th of January, Dr. George Zygundes, who's going to talk about energizing your life, zapping fatigue and self-sabotage. Then we've got Tom Secondo, who's going to talk about the business of mastery. All right, so much more. Thanks to our wonderful producer, LeGrand Green, to our associate producer, Cliff Dunning. Thank you to all of you. I love you, Modern Love listeners. Till next time, blessings. Oh, and Happy New Year.